The last class of my old professor's life took place once a week in his house by a window in the study where he could watch a small hibiscus plant shed its pink leaves. The class met on Tuesdays. It began after breakfast. The subject was the meaning of life. It was taught from experience. No books were required, yet many topics were covered, including love, work, community, family, aging, forgiveness, and finally, death. The last lecture was brief, only a few words. A funeral was held in lieu of graduation. The last class of my old professor's life had only one student. I was the student. The big internalization was the fact that the world is a dangerous place. If you make attachments to things or people, they'll be snatched away. So you've got better be careful. Don't put too much investment into things or people. Because you're apt to lose them. That's what I internalized. That was the voice of Maury Schwartz, the Maury of Tuesdays with Maury. And I am Mitch Album, the author of the book Tuesdays with Maury. And we welcome you to Tuesday People, which is a podcast incarnation of a lot of the lessons learned from that book, which took place 25 years ago now. And I thought it would be a good idea to revisit the tapes, the sounds, the conversations that Maury and I had uh, through the eyes of someone now 25 years older hopefully 25 years wiser, but definitely 25 <laughs> years older, uh, and see how those things looked in the rearview mirror and how they look going forward in life. And that's what we do here on Tuesday People. Alongside me is Lisa Goich, my friend and producer. Hi, Lisa. Hello, Mitch. Glad to have you here as always. You always make the podcast more enjoyable. And you always come up with some great ideas for guests. And I give you full credit for our guest who's sitting right alongside you here. Hope Edelman is the author of Motherless Daughters, which was a huge number one uh, New York Times bestseller. And really, uh, I don't know if it began it, but certainly uh, galvanized discussions about what it means to lose one's mother and how that affects you in your life forever. It is a profound loss. As someone who has lost his mother, I can attest to that. Maury was someone who lost his mother very young. He could certainly attest to it. And we're going to talk today about the effect that the loss of your mother has on you uh, and how it changes you, how you can prepare for it, how you can recover from it, and many other things with Hope Edelman, who is uh, sitting with us right alongside. Nice to have you here. Thanks, Mitch. Good to be here. It's a pleasure to meet you. Same. Your uh, book, like mine, uh, came out of a, a personal experience. Mm -hmm. And I wrote Tuesdays with Maury to pay Maury's medical bills uh, because he didn't have the money to cover them and didn't realize that in writing that book, I was really sort of writing a book for myself and what it turned out to be uh, other people could embrace too about how to, how to uh, find out what's really important in life once you realize you're going to die, which many of us vaguely know but don't ever accept. You wrote Motherless Daughters because you lost your mother at mm -hmm. a very young age. 18, was it? 17. 17. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the loneliness, for want of a better word, that I remember reading you expressed when when your mother 
passed away and there was sort of nothing there Mm-mm. in the world to sort of say, okay, this is what you have to deal with when your mom dies and right. you're young. Right. Tell That's us about right. that. Well, my experience was almost the opposite of yours. I wrote a book for myself. Yeah. I wrote the book I needed that didn't exist. And I was really surprised when so many other people needed it too. Mm. I was 17 when my mother died of breast cancer. She'd been diagnosed about a year and a half earlier. And I went looking for a book after she died because um, I was a reader and I thought maybe I can find some solidarity you know, in pages because I didn't know anyone else who had lost a mom, hardly anyone. It was 1981, so there were no grief support programs. Right. There wasn't even hospice in my community yet. She died in a hospital and it was pretty traumatic right. her last few days. So I, I, I needed some support. And all the books I could find seemed to assume that you'd be in your 40s or 50s when your mother died because demographically or statistically that was right. more common, right. right? It was almost as if there was no recognition at all that you could be under the age of 40 when your mother died. Mm-hmm. So I kept every few years looking for that book at university libraries, at bookstores. And then I got to graduate school in the, around 1990-ish and decided to write it myself because I was at that point had reached like maximum frustration load, mm-hmm. not being able to find that information. And at the time, though, I didn't know it. This book came out right around the time that there was a big shift happening in the bereavement community away from the five stages of grief, Kubler-Ross's work, right. which had permeated my family's experience in 1981 to what's known as the continuing bonds theory, which is about finding ways to stay connected to the loved ones who died, which is mm. what your work has done yeah. for Maury, you know, is to maintain this ongoing connection and relationship that you share with others. Right. But I didn't know it at the time. I was just writing a book to help me and to meet other women who had right. lost their moms. Right. And in that process, you went out and interviewed close to 100 mm-hmm. women, I believe, who mm-hmm. had lost their mothers at various stages of life. That's right. So you found that uh, that had something to do with it. And even in the workshops that you operate now mm-hmm. to help people, you break them mm-hmm. down by age. So we're going to talk about that a little later on about the the age in which you lose your mother. But explain to our audience uh, what is profound and unique about the breaking of the of the the mother well, either mother-child right. relationship, or if you feel it's specific to mother-daughter, then then do it that way. Well, I think mother-child is an irreplaceable relationship. You can only have, you know, one mother right. who gave birth to you, or one mother who you know raised you to a if you made it all the way through childhood with right. the same mom. Um, but the loss for a son is no less profound. It's just different. Yeah. Um, but age at time of loss really is an important determining factor of the long-term outcome. Very much so. And uh, it's an irreplaceable, it's an irreplaceable loss. And I think, you know, a lot of people will go out looking to replace what they lost. It's often a fruitless search. We often look for it in our romantic relationships. Sometimes we're looking for it in our relationships with our children. But I've found that once we accept that we've lost something that's irreplaceable, but we can find ways to still maintain a connection to that person after they die, there's a kind of relief, you know, and when we talk about this at a retreat, I lead four-day retreats for motherless daughters, there's this kind of palpable relief in the room like, oh, okay, that's really sad and terrible that I can't replace that type of love, but now I can, there's relief because now I can stop searching for it in somebody else mm-hmm. and see what I can still hold on to or reconnect with even after she's gone. So let's do it the way that you have found it to be most effective. Then let's start with losing your mother young. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a 
interesting parallel uh, with that with Maury. And here we're yes. going to hear Maury talking about losing his mother because uh, she died when he was very young, just a boy. Listen to this. My mother died when I was eight. She's been sick for quite a few years. And she was sick for about two years before she died. So the whole thing started at age six, the lack of mothering, so to speak. And that's a devastating thing for a youngster. She was in her 20s. She may have been 26 when she got sick and died at 28, mm. or maybe a little older. What do you actually remember of your mother's actual death? Was there a day or a period? Or? My mother went to the hospital. We did not visit her there. We got a telegram, I don't know how much later, announcing that she was dead. That's how. That's it? I have the telegram. You still have it? I showed you. What made you keep the telegram all these years? My father kept it. Uh -huh. When he died, I just got some of his stuff. Uh -huh. How did he inform you? Were you there when the telegram, telegram came? I probably informed him, because he couldn't read English. So, I started to cry a lot. It's usually out of deep feeling. But out of sadness, mostly. The pain of having lost my mother. Now, I have to tell you, when Maury spoke about his mother, which he did frequently, he would tear up. Mm -hmm. He was 78. It was literally, you know, about seven decades later. Mm -hmm. And he was still crying mm -hmm. uh, about that loss. Mm -hmm. So tell us, when you lose your mother as a, as a child, or mm -hmm. even you were 17, I still consider that a child. It is. It's pretty close. Mm -hmm. um, what is unique about that loss, and how does it affect your most people in terms of what they start searching for, grieving mm -hmm. for, missing, mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. and, and reaching for as they age? Well, when you're a child, you're still very dependent on that parent, mm -hmm. certainly the mother, to help you through your various stages of development. You can almost pinpoint what might have gotten scrambled or stuck in your development based on how old you were hmm. when your mom died. If you're very young, you may not have learned emotional self-regulation. Now, that's not to say that every living mother can teach her child emotional right. self-regulation. Right. We have to. Pres I'm talking about mothers who can do it themselves and can model it for their children. But this is why the surviving caregiver matters so much. In fact, it's the most important intervening variable for a child's long-term outcome is who takes care of them, how functional they are themselves, mm -hmm. and how well they can help the child navigate that loss. Maury, I'm going to guess lost his mother in, what would it be, the 30s, the 40s? 30, yeah. Oh, so the, that was back in an yeah. era when the culture still believed that children didn't mourn. So it's very unlikely that he would have gotten emotional support around that loss. Right. I often work with women in their 60s, 70s, even 80s, who lost mothers in that era, who are still grieving. And, and I don't want to say still, actually still grieving is not the right term, because when we see a 78 year old man tearing up because his mom died when he was eight and he's, you know, recounting some of what he went through. I think it's a perfectly normal response because he's feeling empathy for that child that didn't get what he needed. And he's also probably identifying with the mother who didn't get a long life now that, you know, he knows what it is to have a long, full, what, what and rich does, life. What does the loss of a parent at that young stage uh -huh. do to 
that child and then eventually that adult's view of death? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, there's so many intervening variables, but a worldview will change, what's called the schema. I mean, suddenly you learn at a very young age that the world is not necessarily a fair place. It's not a just, especially if you saw someone suffer or witnessed an accident. It tells you that people you love can be taken from you, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's quickly or, you know, as a result of a prolonged illness. But you know things that kids your age may not know yet. And that sets you apart from your peers. And it also makes you feel different at a time when you may want to feel just like everybody else. That's a big issue for teenagers, but certainly for, for younger children as well. I do think, though, that it forces us to have an existential crisis at a really young age and struggle, you know, internally to develop a cosmology that can incorporate this new information. And that can actually, uh, you know, on one hand, be really difficult for a child to navigate on their own, again, if they don't have a surviving caregiver to help them. But it also can create intellectual leaps for a child because now they have to try to think and manage this world that others their age aren't quite understanding yet. Yeah. Right? Well, I, sadly, I've, I've seen this on both sides. We, we uh, you know, adopted a little girl who had lost her mother, a Haitian orphan, who had lost her mother when she was two and a half mm. and didn't really... She claimed to have memories of her, but really didn't. She couldn't recognize her mother, whatever, and and would say things like, will I ever see my mommy again? Mm -hmm. And we would say, well, yes, you'll see her. When you go to heaven, you'll see her. And then she would say, well, um, how will she know me? And, uh, you know, we'd say, well, a mommy always knows her daughter. Mm -hmm. And then she said, well, how will I know her? And is she brown like me, you know, and, and questions like that, you know, that, that you realize she was only five and six asking these questions. Yeah. And, um, you know, to have to, like you say, an existential crisis, <laughs> that's a little young to be right. going through all that. But to have yes, to think about, it? you know, or I, I, what, what I found fascinating about it was she still so embraced the idea of having a mother. Even though she couldn't really m- remember any actual memories. Mm-hmm. She made up some that we later found she was projecting onto other people. My mommy took me for ice cream. Well, my mother never took her for ice cream. There was no ice cream, whatever. But she maybe she went for ice cream with somebody when she was later Mm -hmm. and she put that on. But the desire to have that relationship still with her mother, Mm -hmm. to look forward to it even when she, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, she was a child and she was talking about seeing her when she was in heaven. So clearly it's in your mind. And you said something that I think our audience is very interested in. The other person or whoever is left behind to raise her. In her case, she had nobody. We did our best to become her. First, she came to the orphanage that I operate, and then ultimately when we, we brought her to live with us, we became you know the de facto parents, although we never, never said to her, call us mommy or daddy or anything like that. And we always said, you had a mommy. You don't need to call us mommy. You can just call us Mr. Mitch or Mr. Janine. So we became the, the next factor for her. What is like let's say it's a father all right who survives uh, mm-hmm. you know the mother dies the father dies. Mm-hmm. what is what is the optimal circumstance mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. help a child get through the loss of a mother is it how does a father behave is it 
good for the father to remarry or bring a, a mm-hmm, you know a, a mm-hmm. mother figure in tell us about that. yeah and that starts getting into the difference between how men and women grieve right. mm-hmm. um, the harvard child bereavement study found that the kids who had the hardest time adjusting over the long term were the girls who lost a mother and it wasn't because mother loss is much harder on girls it's because they were let then raised by fathers who grieve very differently than girls men and this is not completely binary, but men tend to work through their grief through action and problem solving, which can involve dating, getting involved with someone very quickly. Mm -hmm. Whereas females, or the traditional feminine approach to grief, I should say, tends to be um, talking through your emotions, reaching out to other people, Mm self-expression. And so there's a disconnect there, right? If the girl needs someone to talk to and process her emotions with, and the dad is... Um, getting involved in work or, you know, with dating because that's how he's working through his grief. Because let's not forget he lost a spouse, right? Right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Whereas if a child is left with a mother, because the father dies, the mother is typically more attuned to the child's emotional needs. Mm. So that's, you know, that creates, like I said, a bit of a disconnect. So the optimal situation is um, to be able to, you know, process emotions with your child. And if you can't, again, because you're grieving, to find a local bereavement center with groups for kids. They're all over the country. There's hundreds of them in almost every major city in America and a lot of smaller cities too, where that child can meet other kids who've lost a parent um, or have someone to talk to. That's optimal. I, you know, dads sometimes come to me and say, my wife recently died and I'm raising two daughters and what suggestions do you have for me? And the suggestion, the main suggestion that I have isn't always what they want to hear, but I'll say it anyway, because it is what's best for their girls, which is try to wait at least a year before you get deeply involved with somebody else or bring another woman Mm. into the house because because your child needs to go through that year, the first birthday without her mom, the first holiday season without her mom, the anniversary of her mother's death with you there by her Mm. side and not connected to another woman yet. And it will be an easier transition than if and when you do start dating. How does the uh, surviving uh, husband, father, what's the roadmap for him to provide what the missing mother used to provide mm-hmm. versus not trying to be the mom right. and therefore maybe frustrating the right. kid. Well, you know, just trying and having your child know that you're trying goes a long way, mm-hmm. right? I mean, maybe you're not going to be able to brush her hair exactly like like her mom did, but mm-hmm. you're going to try. You'll figure it out together. Um that that helps an, an awful lot. Um, and also, but bringing in other women to fill the gap, because there's going to be something, like you said, that a dad just can't do for a daughter, the same way that there's there are things that a mom just can't do for a son. She can't model the kind of male behavior or male attention that he would get from his dad. Right. So Even relatives you look, and stuff. Like, yeah, look out into the family. But what's yeah, really, really important, friends. yes, yeah. that's really important, is allow the child to remain connected to the mother's family. Yes. If it's a functional family, yeah. if it's a loving family, because she will need that connection to her mom, to her mom's stories. She needs to be around people who can tell her who her later in life who her mom was when she mm-hmm. was a child and right. a young adult. And so this this raises a very interesting point, and we'll we'll return to it as they get older as well. But now we're talking, and you know, we're breaking it down for purposes of our, of our podcast, so we'll break it down mm-hmm. into sort of categories: child being you know eighteen and under. Yeah, referencing. How important is it to uh, for that child to not only be told, okay, well, we have to get over it, you know, our mom's gone, we mm-hmm. need to move on, you know, you hear those kinds of things, 
I'm guessing because of your orientation and what you said at the beginning that it's actually healthier to embrace a lot of your mother's memories, find out more about your mom. Mm -hmm. You know, frequently you'll see kids who'll say, tell you, I want to know everything about my mother, stuff that they wouldn't have wanted to know if their mom was alive. You know, it'd be like, oh, mom, that's a boring story. But now suddenly it's fascinating. They want to know everything. What's the balance? What's the correct way to do that? Well, I want to say I think those cultural messages about getting over it and moving on are incredibly damaging to anyone, you know, in Western culture, but certainly to a child. And here's why. Because a child is only capable of grieving to the cognitive and emotional state of maturity that they've achieved at the time. So if you're Maury and you're eight years old, you can only process that loss and understand it based on your eight-year-old cognition and your eight-year-old emotional maturity. And it's really, really predictable for children to reach certain points in their own development where they either suddenly, you know, understand abstract thinking. And they, you know, an eight-year-old is not really thinking, my my mom's not going to be there when I get married, right? right? They're thinking, my mom's not going to be there when I get home from school tomorrow. They're very much in the present. So as a child develops intellectually and emotionally, they're going to revisit that loss in a different way. And the adults around them don't always connect the dots, right? Like an eight-year-old might be graduating from high school and suddenly really feel sad because their mom died 10 years ago. And every, when everyone thinks that they should be over it, they're not going to get the kind of support that they need. This is what I call the long arc of grief. It, and it's what makes it a lifelong process. Because, you know, by the way, it's really common to feel that way when you get married, when you have your first child. And my mom died when I was 17. My first child was born when I was 33. And I had a big grief response being a mother without my mother there. And Mm. it was 16 years later, right? The culture said I should have been over it by then. But, you know, heck no, I was not over it. The amount of grief, visible grief that the surviving spouse should show in front of the child. Well, I think sometimes it's really healthy for children to see that the parents cry when they're sad because it gives them permission to cry when they're sad. But if they feel that the the parent is incapacitated or debilitated to a point where they can't care for the child, that's frightening for a child. They will often suppress their grief until the the parent looks like they're doing better. Maury went through that with his father who uh, really just never spoke about it. And, oh, that uh, was very common in that era. Sure. A- 1981, we never talked about my mom after she died. Can you imagine? 1981. Yeah, that's 17 crazy. years of my life she had spent with me, and I couldn't talk about her because it would destabilize the other family members. Mm-hmm. I mean, my siblings and I talk about her all the time now, but we were very, very careful about not upsetting our father because if he fell apart, who would be there to take care of us? All right, let's shift to a second stage uh, where let's call it, you know, post-school Young, young uh, womanhood, uh-huh. uh, early marriage, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps uh, first children, you know, a 20 to 40 range mm-hmm. when you're, you know, making your big early life decisions. If you were to lose your mother during that period of time, right. what have you found uh, from the people that you've worked with that uh, how that hits them during that that key moment of, you know, right. so many steps that yeah. you now, but well, becoming a mother is one mm-hmm. of them. But getting mm-hmm. married and becoming a mother, you know, starting your career or whatever, mm-hmm. all those things. Walk us through that. Well, thank you for asking about that because losing a mom in your 20s and early 30s is a particularly overlooked demographic oh, yeah. in the bereavement world because the idea is you're an adult, but um, and so you should be able to handle it. 
but that you may not have a lot of peers or a partner yet that, you know, really you can really share with and open up with or who understand what you're going through. And that's a time, especially in, in America, the 20s is a time when you're still testing out different identities and figuring out who you're going right. to be and choosing your maybe choosing your partner or choosing not to partner during that time. And you may still be very emotionally tied to your family. You've got one foot in and one foot out. And you may still be pretty dependent on your parents for advice or support or financial support these days. And so the loss of a, of a mother, certainly during that time, if you're a woman, but even if you're a man, it can be very, very destabilizing. And um, you have, however, ideally, resources that to get for yourself that you, you, you can't when you're a child. You can't when you're a child drive yourself to a grief group, right? right. Or figure out your insurance so you can right. see a therapist. So it's a little different in that way. But the transitions into um, a a permanent partnership or, you know, stable partnership like a marriage or a partnering. And the transition to parenthood is really significant, specifically for women who lose their mothers and men who lose their fathers, right? Because they're stepping into that role. They want the parent to witness them. They want the parent to validate them. If you're becoming a parent, you might wish your parent were there to help you right. either practically mm -hmm. or support you emotionally. But there tend to be a rush in one direction or the other when uh, someone loses their mother to like get married quickly or start a family quickly, make you know, substitute the, some kind be. of familiar familial type of thing? It can be. It really depends on the individual. I've met quite a few women who chose to marry a man um, that they were with at the time their mom died because they wanted to marry someone who their mom had known or uh, approved uh, of. Uh, it wasn't always the right choice for them. Yeah. Um, that was a pretty common, you know, situation that I, that I encountered. marry them because they helped them get through yes, the grief exactly. and they felt yes, like they were there for me. Yes, it creates a kind of bonding. During, exactly. Yeah. And they knew exactly. them that period Whereas they might not have chosen them for partnership or marriage under other circumstances. Yes. Interesting. And uh, how about in terms of acting out? Because as you say, well, you have the resources to drive yourself to a bereavement group. You also have the resources to, you know, and money and you're earning and you're working and, you know, maybe you Ideally, just decide yeah. to just go way off way off the road that your mother might have wanted mm -hmm. you to stay on or uh, mm -hmm. maybe you feel like you've lost your north star mm -hmm. you've lost your your guiding light you know uh, of advice and yeah. do you find people make some bad life decisions sure. you know sure all the time i also find that some people find it freeing too. Depends I mean, mom, I, I, I went, I, I certainly went off the track that my mother would have chosen for me. And mm -hmm. it led me, I think, to a much richer and more expansive life than I might have chosen for myself otherwise. So it can go both ways. You know, it can go in that direction, or it can go towards self-medicating, right? right. And the, right. I mean, and, and everything in between. What are the, um, what are the salves at that age? I mean, we've talked about Young kids, they are at those ages, they need others mm -hmm. uh, to comfort them. Mm -hmm. You can't expect an 11 year old to just sort of work it out, you know. Mm -mm. So, so they, they need their fathers, their aunts, uncles, the people around them, mm -hmm. teachers, you know, counselors. Um, when you're in your 20s, 30s, you know, approaching yeah. 40 and you lose your, your mother, what have you found provides the most comfort for people in those ages? It's finding others who have a similar story, which is why I've started these groups and retreats. Mm. They're all over the world now. There's more than 60 motherless daughters support groups where women get together and they feel like I finally, I found my tribe. I found the people mm. who understand me. They share the same, some of the same history. They share the same fears, the same challenges, the same triumphs, and we will witness each other. Every retreat that I lead is about between 20 and 26 women at a time. 
and um, they have a Facebook page where they can introduce themselves in advance and start getting to know each other. But then after the retreat, they can still meet there. And I see the Facebook pages and the posts. It's like, it's the anniversary, you know, it's the 30th anniversary of my mom's death. I'm feeling really sad, could use some sisterly love. And, you know, within 12 hours, they'll get 17 women supporting them. Or they might say, you know, I'm, I'm, my, my wedding is next week. And, you know, I've, a lot's coming up for me. And they'll say, you go, you got this. Or they'll attend each other's weddings. One woman, oh, nice. one woman came to a, a, a workshop. She'd been to a retreat. And she said, I was standing there in my gown in the bridal room thinking, how am I going to go through this without my mom? And then two women from my retreat got there and came in the room and I felt, okay, I can do this. Mm. So the That's support cool. of other I know, people. I'm crying while I'm oh. saying it. Yeah. The support of other people <laughs> in those circumstances is, is of the utmost comfort you're saying. That's uh, what I found is the, is the greatest and yeah, when support. And when they uh, are together at these retreats, what do you find is the co- most common topics of conversation when they first begin mm. to like mm-hmm. the walls begin to come down what are they saying to one another that that is uniform okay oh that's good that's a good question how do i do it without invading privacy and giving examples um i think they you know i see when they get there I'll, I'll tell you about this when they get there one of the things we do at the retreats is a one word check-in we go around the circle everyone gives us one word to describe how they're feeling and that very first time we do it, the first night, you know, when we all gather before dinner, um, we hear a lot of scared, apprehensive, nervous, because they may not have opened up and talked about mm. this with it, certainly not with a group of strangers, but sometimes not ever if they were very young and were told they had to, you know, not cry. I mean, mm. there, children are prohibit, have been prohibited from crying after yeah. a mother dies more often than any of us would like to think. Yeah. And then so we start on a Thursday evening and we end on a Sunday afternoon. And when we do that last check-in on Sundays, we go around the circle and the word is, um, I feel held, I feel comforted, I feel understood, I feel calm, I feel, you know, sad about leaving. And you can, and you, but you see it not just in their language, but in their bodies, in their faces, you know, the release that just from being able to share their story with people who don't pity them, who don't judge them who will receive it with compassion and curiosity. So that's the arc that we watch them travel. You know, on Fridays are a very intense day because we say we are opening up the box. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to see what's been in there. Mm-hmm. And and it's very emotional. And, you know, there's lots of tissues used on a Friday. And, you know, sometimes my co-facilitator and I on a Friday are like, whoa, mm-hmm. whoa, forgot about how intense this is. Yeah. And if someone's leading with me for the first time, they're like, oh, my God, I, mm-hmm. I wasn't prepared Can't for that. It, yeah. But right. then I say, but wait till Sunday. I promise when you see them on Sunday, it's like a blossom. It's a whole new group, and it always is. I mean, we've done 13 retreats so far, and I haven't been proven wrong with that one yet. But okay. Now, uh, you've talked about some of the emotional um, releases that mm-hmm. people have and uh, the commonalities they have with other people. What do you find – and let's start at that stage that we're still talking about, that 20 to 40-year-old age, because – you know, they've had an adult relationship with their mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do women most commonly get stuck on uh, after the death of their mother? What is it? What is a, a frequent tripping? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I lead online courses and my next one is going to be getting unstuck yeah. because I've identified 12 areas where women tend to get most stuck in their development or in their grief. 
And so I'm trying to think between 20 and 40, it's often about staying, finding ways, meaningful ways to stay connected to the mother. How old were you when your mom died? Mitch. Oh, she died about seven years ago. So, so yeah. you were in adulthood. Yeah, you were in adulthood. Way, <laughs> way you into consider adulthood. me in adulthood now. Yeah, <laughs> well, I was in my fifties. So, how do you stay connected to her now? Like, are, are there ways that you continue to honor her, or things that you do to celebrate her, or you know? I've, I've written about her. Uh-huh. Uh, I, uh, you know, there are anniversaries. Her, her, their wedding anniversary because both mm-hmm. my parents are gone. Their, uh, her birthday. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to make a video with both my parents, but my mom was the talker of the two of them. So she, you know, it was really her about our family history when she was still lucid and, you know, and still, mm-hmm. you know, remembered everything. Uh, she was probably about late seventies and it's about a 25 minute long family history with all the stories. And we had a really nutty family. I mean, they were, they were crazy. And she fit it all and in 25 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably actually maybe longer than that. And I think, I think the first tape is 25 and then we did another like 20 minutes after that. And my father occasionally says, no, that wasn't her. That was, it was somebody else or it was somebody. Right. And she says, Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> what a but gift. It's hysterical. Love it. And I will watch that. I find of all the things, all uh-huh. the photos, all the, uh-huh. anything that I have, I can watch that over and over again. And because she's talking about, mm-hmm. it's not just her, but she's talking about our entire family history, those who came before her, those who came with her, those who came after her. It's the best connection that mm-hmm. I have, just not just to her, but also to our whole family, because mm-hmm. she was the portal through which I I knew my mm-hmm. family. You know, she broke down my family for me. She would, not only her side, but also my dad's side, she would tell me, okay, this uncle's crazy. This one's not. This one's good. You can't trust this one. You can't mean, like, like, so, so everything, we were all shaded by how my mother viewed yeah. our family. So to hear her talk about the family, I find to be, it's like a blanket. Uh-huh. You know, it's just like, okay, that's, there's my mom and she's right there in front of me. On, uh-huh. so thank God for video. You know, thank God for yeah. little cell phones that you could film. So that's how I find, you uh-huh. know, my, maintain my connection to her. That and quoting her like every other day because she always had something. To say that. Right, but look how lively and happy you are when you talk oh, about yeah. it. Yeah. Right, okay, it's yeah. a, and it, and so I, you know, that's what I want for the women at the retreats, and that's what right. we, you know, we try to help them find ways. If they're very young when their mom died, they're often coming in with a completely severed connection, like mm. they don't know how to reconnect with her. If they're in the twenty to forty range, they're usually looking for ways to stay connected. Mm. So telling story, sharing stories about her, I mean, we go around the circle and and on on a. Saturday night and we say, tell us a story about your mom. They bring pictures. They tell us stories about her. And so suddenly the 26 women in the room become 52. Right. Because all those moms now there are at the retreat with us. That's great. And we look for ways that, you know, to help them keep those memories alive and stay connected to them. And the women who don't know much about their moms, we encourage them to make a list of who can you ask when you leave the retreat? Who can you ask? I'm very, very influenced by the work of Michael White, who developed narrative therapy in Australia in the 1980s. And he wrote a paper called Saying Hello Again, because he was getting clients coming to him who were in real states of distress. They were bereaved people who were very, very well versed in the five stages of grief and felt that they were failing because they were still grieving you know, mm-hmm. after a period of time. And he realized that actually what was hurting them was this, this idea that they had to say goodbye. He thought... He, 
maybe they need to say hello again. Mm. And he oh. found ways mm. to, and so this relational theory of grief now that helps people stay connected. The work of Lorraine Hedke is brilliant in this area and narrative therapy. It's helping people reconnect with those who died because they find their salve in, in maintaining some kind of connection. That's the theory of continuing mm. bonds as well. It's funny because yeah. when you say that, I mean, that's exactly how I feel with that video that I'm describing. Exactly. I never think like, Perfect example. come on, Mitch, how many times are you going to watch this? I Keep said, watching. No, this is, uh, yeah. you know, I miss my mom. I want to hear her voice and, and you know, let's hear it. And it brings her into the room again, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. It does. Absolutely. That Absolutely. stories, like you were saying, stories from other relatives and stuff. And like my mom's girlfriends are, you know, they're all in their late 80s and 90s now. But I love hearing their funny stories, you know, especially about when your mom was younger, things that uh -huh. you may not have known about her yeah. in her teenage years or what was she like when she was 20. Exactly. You know, when you don't have them to ask those questions of anymore. Right. You know, about a year and a half ago, a really good friend of mine died. And I walked as far as I could with her, you know, before friends could no longer continue walking with her. And one of the things we did was I said to her, um, who are your story keepers? Let's make a list. Uh, who can your daughter come to in the future who can tell her stories about who you were as a child, about who you were in high school, about who you were in college? And we made the list and gave it to her husband so that her daughter can access those people when she wants those stories. And uh, I, I, precious. You have to, you have to, you know, as a dying woman, be willing to face that you're dying, which yeah. she did, you know, really amazingly. But um, I really encourage people to do that for each other. That's a great gift that you can help your friend leave behind for their right. child if they're sick or dying. Yeah. So let's go now to uh, the final sort of age group, uh, that being when death occurs at a more normal, uh, you know, statistical mm -hmm. age, mothers dying in the 70s or, or 80s, mm -hmm. uh, therefore their daughters maybe being in their 40s or 50s. And there's a lot of, you know, with the baby boomer generation, there's a lot of this going on right now. And certainly people my age, Lisa's age, know people who have lost their mothers within the last five to 10 years. And, you know, at this point, we're already adults. You, maybe your kids are raised, you know. Mm -hmm. But what are the challenges? What are the issues when a parent dies at at that stage, uh, you know, mm -hmm. you would quote unquote call it more normal, but I'm sure it's never normal. Well, it's called what? an on time loss, yes, right? Right. But you've maybe lived 50 years with this person in your life. You don't know how to exist in a world without right. that's a long time to have a relationship, right? And that person probably fills multiple roles in your life. Maybe you were taking care of them, or maybe they were your confidant, or they were the mother to your grandmother to your children, or the mother in law to your spouse. So, you know, in that's why we divide the groups by age at motherless daughters right. retreats because losing a mom when you're 6 is obviously very different than losing her when you're 55 right there's in the words of the immortal elizabeth kubler ross there is no competition in suffering you know it's not better or worse to lose a mom when you're a child or um it's not easier or harder when you're a child or an adult i don't go there with the comparisons it's really difficult but for different it's difficult at any age but for different reasons mm. so um you know if your mom dies when you are an adult, you may have walked her through that illness, right? So you may have some trauma around watching right. her deteriorate like that. Right. Um, but you also may have to help your children adjust to that loss, right? It almost like a, you know, a spouse would have to do or a surviving right. spouse for young children. So you have multiple roles to juggle there. And, um, you know, it, it can feel like a lot. <laughs> I wonder if yeah. uh, where guilt enters into these equations uh, because, uh, you know, the, the, 
the one thing about being an adult when you lose an adult, and I always say this about when I compare Tuesdays with Maury, sitting with Maury was 78 years old and I was 37, and finding Chica and sitting with a seven-year-old girl when I was 50, 57, mm. is that nobody expected me to save Maury, but I expected to save Chica. Yeah. And there's a whole difference between when you somehow feel responsible uh, for the caretaking of the individual who you lose. So I meet a lot of people now who are in their 50s taking care of their parents, and they hit all these crossroads of, you know, is it time to put them in a home, assisted living? I don't, you know, should I search for another doctor? Or we should just accept it. And when when the child becomes the parent to the parent, mm -hmm. so when a daughter becomes the mother to the mother, it's difficult to know how much effort to put in, how mm -hmm. much, you know, and do you find women who have issues after their mother's past like i should have done more oh sure well with any with any life event or you know situation we find ourselves in there's always another choice we could have made right right, right. and if whatever choice we made led to an outcome that doesn't give us joy and pleasure and and or you know just um some form of peace then there's guilt maybe or regret right. about the choice that wasn't made right. Right? right i see this a lot among the women who were teenagers when their moms died often a lot of guilt for not having made their mom's life easier because right. they were trying yeah. to juggle the demands of adolescence with which often is a pushing against your parents right. with the demands of having a sick mom or mourning your mom right right uh, before she so dies so yeah guilt comes exactly, up a lot it's exactly that comparison that i'm thinking yes your teenage and I could see if your mother dies, you feel like, oh, man, you know, th that last year I was with my boyfriend. I was arguing with her all the time. I uh -huh. was, so now that I look back on it, I was so mature. But now projecting ahead, I see a lot of women whose mothers have become burdensome in some ways mm -hmm. to them, interfering with their life, oh, you well, know, interfering with right. their grandchildren and all that. And they push back sure. on that. And then suddenly their mother's gone. And it's like. Well, they uh, might feel relief. They do, but and then, then you feel guilt, guilt, guilt for the relief. the relief, right? right. Exactly. Right. So how do you exactly. coach people through that type of thing? Well, you know, sometimes it depends on the individual because I do do one-on-one -on -one coaching. So in, in the depending on the story and the individual, we might walk through all the steps and the choices that they did make. We might say, if you knew that this choice would lead to your mother's death, would you have made it? And they say, of course not. And I said, well, then you can only make a decision based on what you know, right? right? It's, the guilt is retrospective because at the time, you may not have been making a choice that would have led to that outcome if you knew that was going to be the outcome. Mm -hmm. So that's one route we might take. Um, or we might, you know, look at that relief and, and balance it. You know, I'm always looking for ways to balance out a story, mm -hmm. working with them through through forms of narrative therapy because... We carry, we, we create a story to understand our lives. We all do that. I mean, we're storytellers. You know this. We create, we're, we're storytelling animals. We, we're looking to make meaning and we make meaning out of story. So we might dissect their stories and see what parts of their stories maybe aren't completely true or maybe aren't true anymore. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there is, of course, when you're losing a parent at, at an advanced age or like in your case, tragically, when you're losing a child, where you have a feeling of responsibility, right? right? right. I should have done something. What could I have done to help, you know, that person? And this is a, often comes up a lot, you know, when there's a death by suicide. What did I miss? Right. What could I have done? How could I have intervened 
to stop that from happening. So there, you know, we see, a, I see a lot of guilt around women whose moms and then die I, that way. I imagine there's also, then this happens between fathers and sons, and it has to happen between mothers mm-hmm. and daughters, I imagine. When you bury your mother uh, at a certain age, you realize you're next. You know, like sure. you are now, there goes my... Uh, yeah, my uh, roof. Right. Like, my like ceiling. Lisa, you said, well, my dad's in his 90s, so yeah. how, you know, I'm, I'm not going to die because look, at I've got this many years yeah, between me and right. him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when suddenly they're gone and you're the matriarch or the patriarch of, of your family... You slid over. You know, mortality <laughs> right. starts to become a very real thing. Yes, it does. You know, and I don't think I ever felt as... Um, I don't know, fearful of death. Uh, you know, I try not to use that word so much, with, but certainly mm. cognizant of it. Exposed. Yeah, exposed to death until my parents were gone. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it's as if the sheath just comes down. And it's like, even if you're healthy and all the rest of the stuff, you realize, okay, next in line, what makes sense, it's not going to be my kids. It's not going to be my nieces or nephews. Uh, they're looking at me saying, you're the oldest one now. You're right. the buffer between us and, and right. death. Do you find sure. that to be an issue with? Uh, oh, sure. At any age, you know, my ceiling was ripped off at the age of 17. Right. And what that did for me was tell me that, you know, we're all here with an expiration date, but we don't know what it's going to be because right. my mom right. certainly didn't expect did to die at 42. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah. Yes. Actually, I fear dying young from breast cancer for a long time right. because we tend to be afraid that we'll die the same way that our right. parents did. It's a form of identification. Right. So, yeah, I did. I mean, I... I still do. Now I, now I fear death more about leaving my children before they're ready right. for me to go. Right. But, oh, sure. Yeah, I see that all the time. Anna Quinlan actually has talked about this quite eloquently, both in Motherless Daughters and elsewhere, about how losing her mom, I believe she was 19 when her mom died from mm-hmm. cancer, made her feel like I have to achieve everything quickly because right. I don't know how much time I'm going to have. Mm-hmm. So it can create this kind of overachievement. You know, it can activate the overachieving gene if you have one. Yeah. Yeah. So is there anything, Hope, that um, anything that people can do while they are, because you, you generally coach and, and, and work with people who have already lost their mothers after they've lost their mother. Mm-hmm. Is there anything while their mothers are alive at all these various stages mm-hmm. that can help prepare to perhaps soften the blow when and if death should come, either early or even in normal time, as you call it? Well, I don't know that I would ever recommend someone to live your life and your relationship with that person as if they're going to die, right? Mm -hmm. Because we can't control what hasn't happened yet. Um, But I can make suggestions for what you can do now so that you will have an easier time you know, way after, you know, in what I call the long arc again, or what I call the after grief, which is what my next book is about, Um, which is collect their stories, have the conversations that you'd like to have now that you can foresee, Um, make choices for your future self, like what, what I'm going to project myself ahead, you know, 10 or 20 years, what would I have liked to have said? What would I would, what would I like to have, you know, have collected? Um, Again, it depends on whether or not your mom is actively dying and knows she's dying and is accepting that she's dying. Some conversations you can have and some you can't. But um, certainly if you're an adult, you can think about, okay, you know, what, what, what can I, what favor can I do for my future self? Mm-hmm. I picked this up from a friend of mine, you know, who, who lost someone very close to him. Um, what favor can you do for your future self? Now, if you can envision that person, what would I like to have in the future? Or what would I like to have said? And try to do it now. Because now is now is all we have, right? Really. Do you encourage people to uh, to do an exercise along the lines of you know 
what would you say to your mom if she were, if you had another conversation with her sure. right now? Yeah, I work with women to write letters to their moms now who have been gone for 20 or 30 years. What do you find most years? frequently, the themes that they most frequently want to say to those who are gone? I don't read their letters. They're private, mm-hmm. so I don't know. But I think when I were, would sit down to write a letter to my mom or to my father who died when I was 40, I find that... Um, I ask them for advice, but I know the answers. That's the surprise, is Hmm. that I almost Hmm. always, like I can imagine what they would say to me. And maybe I'm way off because I'm imagining what my mom would have said to me at 42, right? Now she'd be in her 80s. So I don't know how she would have changed and grown or developed or, right? right? I don't know what she would have become. But I can pretty much imagine, you know, what she would have said to me at 42. Yeah, Yeah, that's another thing is that your your mom gets stuck in your mind at a certain age. Mm -hmm. That's another way that people feel stuck. Yeah. I wonder how many people would want to say, I'm sorry. It seems that I'm sorry is a very yeah. common thing people want to tell their parents, and uh, and and it's amusing sometimes to the parents because it's like that's the last thing I expected right? from you, right? You know? and you I don't mean, owe me a, an I'm sorry, but kids often feel that they do. Well, you know? the the teenagers often want to apologize for yeah. their behavior, and we talk about that. We talk about well, what was your mom's relationship like with her mom? And she says, well, you know, it wasn't so good for a while, and then right. it got better. And I right. said, well, don't you think your mom knew, yeah. you know, that right. you were that just acting like a normal same. teenager right. because she'd been through it and been there once right. herself? And that right. often, you know, helps people right. self-regulate a bit there. Well, what an interesting uh, topic and world that you uh, have have dived into, were dropped into, I guess, you know, by life circumstance. But as we have both found, you know, uh, interesting Exposures to death can lead to very um, uh, life-affirming types of things. Sure. And what you do is, is is really, really important work. If you haven't read Motherless Daughters, if you're one of the four people out there who haven't, then you should get it. And there are a number of other books that Hope Edelman has written as well, Letters from Motherless Daughters and others, uh, and now a new one that you've got coming out. And, and, uh, yeah, The After Grief. And also, you mentioned that uh, uh, you're g- considering or doing going back to the original almost 100 people that you uh, interviewed for Motherless Daughters and kind of find out where they are now, which is sort of in line with uh-huh. what we're doing with this podcast 25 years after exactly. Maury and I had these discussions. Uh-huh. So I think you'll you'll find that to be very interesting. I have so far. I've, I've found 17 of the original women from Motherless Daughters, wow. re-interviewed them. And what's fascinating is to see how, you know, because the facts of a death don't change, right? Like right. my mom will always have died well, in 1981. Exactly. Um, I was 17. She was 42. Those those facts are, are fixed. But the way that we interpret those facts and the way that they guide us changes so much over time. That's been fascinating to witness. Yeah. Look forward to that. Come back and talk to us when you're uh, Yeah, sure. I'll be happy to, for sure. I'd love to have you back. We hope you enjoyed this uh, edition of Tuesday People, the podcast. We do this uh, once a week. And so on behalf of Lisa Goich and our guest, Hope Edelman, again, Motherless Daughters is her original book, and there are many others since then. Thank you for sitting in with us on this conversation, and we will see you next Tuesday. Thank you for listening to Tuesday People. To be part of our conversation, join the Tuesday People community at wetuesdaypeople.com. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and share it with your friends. We look forward to having you with us every Tuesday because, after all, we're Tuesday People.